0: About a decade ago, I made the swap from Windows-based computers to Apple. The upside is that all of my devices connect and communicate with one another seamlessly. If I type something into the Notes app on my iPhone, it appears on my laptop, and if I edit it there, the corrections automatically appear almost magically on the desktop in my home office. This interconnectivity skyrocketed my productivity and the ease with which I navigate my workflow. Again, that's the upside. But yes, there's also a downside. It's a tricky one, but it's there, and here's my shot at explaining it. Apple products just, well, they just work. It seems like the other kinds of computers I used were always finicky and regularly flatlined. They took forever to start up. Every time a program got locked up, I had to reboot the entire machine. The blue screen of death regularly appeared, along with that pinwheel beach ball type thing, I had to purchase a new computer, almost like precision clockwork, every year. And since nothing transferred automatically, I spent numerous nights sleeplessly trying to sync, move, clone, etc. I had to reinstall every program individually and adjust every setting on the new computer. I've never had to do any of that with my Macs. Now I know you're wondering, what's the downside? Well, it turns out my Mac laptops have worked so well that I never even turn them off, ever. I just press Control sh- plus S, that's the macro to save the current file I'm working on, and then I close the cover of the computer, like a book, that's it. When I wanna work again, I just open the computer, like a book, and begin anew. Any changes i pecked into my phone or other device having already automatically made their way to the never turned off laptop. Yet, right there, that's the rub. Eventually, my first Mac began dragging. Struggling. Bad. It began behaving like a Windows-based PC. The whole thing got janky enough that I set an appointment at the Genius Bar at the local Apple Store. Do you ever turn this thing off? The blue-shirted genius asked me. Knowing I was probably in trouble by a kid half my age, I sheepishly admitted, uh, no, not really. Then after a few moments of this kid just staring at me, actually, no, not at all, I never turn it off. Well, let's restart it, he said. He punched a few keys and did something I hadn't done to the computer in six to nine months. He powered the machine down, completely off. After a few minutes, he pressed the power button and the laptop came back to life almost as if it was completely new. Now, over the next few days, I noticed the computer no longer slogged along. It's like the entire system exhibited renewed vigor and enthusiasm. Crazy, huh? If you've owned a cell phone, I know the technical name is actually mobile phone now and everybody has one, you've probably had unresolvable issues with it. You've called tech support, and then you heard something like this from the support rep. Do this for me. Let's perform something called a hard reset. They always say it like it's so technical, right? Then then they continue. We're going to completely power the thing down, wait a few minutes, and then we're going to start it back up. They always promise something that seems absurd for such a simple task as turning the phone off. That should fix it. Generally, they're right. It does. I've seen this with virtually all of my electronic devices. I have a huge 55 inch TV in my living room, tied to my Apple TV. I leave it on all the time. I play music from it and I let the screensaver run in the background 24 hours a day. It flustered me the first time I discovered this phenomenon. I sat down, pizza in hand, ready to enjoy a movie at the end of a long week of work travel with my compadres, Jim Bob and Ernie from the Oily App Project. I left the television on the entire time we were gone, of course. Now, imagine my undelight when I selected a movie from my wish list, settled back to enjoy, and watched the opening bumper of the movie begin to play in complete silence. I decided if the power-off weight power on routine was good enough for the tiny phone and my laptop, it was probably good enough for the sound function on my oversized TV. Worked like a charm. Now, without fail, the occasional quiet spell phases me not. I take it in stride. I power everything off, pause, repower, and everything on the television instantly works again, like new. The temporary pause creates space where the machine performs at max output once again. I restart my computer at least once a week now, and I regularly turn my phone completely off. When I do, they work well. When I forget and I don't, they just, well, they don't work well until I do that hard reset it is. Now, I've got this graphic. I'm gonna put it in the show notes. It's a graphic that it's just, what do these have in common? And on one side, it's got a computer and a smartphone. On the other side, it's got a person. And the reality is the more trips I make around the sun, the more I realize that we're exactly like those machines. In order to work right, we've got to pause too. Now, a few months ago I released the book, Healthy Hustle. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes where you can look at it. I titled chapter number one, Creations Rhythm. The main argument being that for all the talk in our culture about living in balance, that's not actually how we're designed to live. We're made, we're hardwired not to live in balance, but to live in rhythm. That is, we're created to live in segments of high intensity followed by breaks of complete rest. Power on, power off. Power on, power off. Power on, power off. That's not how we usually run things, though. In fact, when we face situations, we may actually tend to grind away faster and faster. The harder and more difficult and tougher the situation is, thinking that more effort will help us fix it, whatever it is. Rather than making progress forward though, the result is often like trying to drive a stuck truck out of the mud. The harder you push, the more stuck you become. In fact, fairly fast, you realize the weight you're carrying and the energy you're expending actually begin working against you. You regress rather than progress. At some point, in order to unstick a truck, you've got to pause. You've got to step outside and knock some of the mud off. That is you've got to be willing to not make progress for a moment in order to actually make meaningful progress at all over the long haul. Now think about that. Uh, All the examples I've talked about thus far and how it applies to life uh, and and to the hurts and wounds that we carry from the hard things we've endured. The best way to move forward is uh, like the computer, like the phone, like my TV, like the truck is to live in rhythm. In fact, That's the way to get wholeness when we're broken, and it's actually the best way to remain there once we make it to that state of wholeness. So here's the question, how can you tell if you're living in rhythm? Uh, Sometimes it's easier to see what something is based on what it's not, like what it should look like based on what it doesn't look like. After all, if we're living out of sync, we probably resemble the symptoms of living offbeat rather than living on beat. Here's what I want to do for the remainder of this talk, is I want to outline five signs, five, five symptoms, that you might be living out of sync. Let, let me list them and then I'm going to talk through them just one by one uh, for the rest of our time together. Now, number one, you can't be quiet, you don't want to be alone. Number two, you often feel sickish or sluggish for no reason. Number three, you're snappy. Number four, you feel down or depressed. Number five, you just endured trauma or hard things. Now, I'm going to discuss them, and after I discuss them, I'll provide you with some tips to step back into the cadence for which you're created. All right, here we go. Number one, you can't get quiet. You don't want to be alone. Now, one of the blends that we use in Young Living's uh, Freedom Sleep Kit, uh, that's an essential oil kit that I use kind of in that world of uh, oily app and every other thing there. So some of you that are listening know exactly what that is. Some of you don't. The illustration applies either way. The oil is valor. It's an oil usually associated with facing hard things. Now the name of that essential oil, it's a nod to the Roman soldiers who are said to have placed a similar blend of essential oils on the soles of their feet and on their shields even before marching into battle. Courage, a synonym of valor, it doesn't deny fear, rather it acknowledges the tension of continuing amidst it anyway, fighting on just like those warriors. Now, as we met up to shoot a video course about the kit, it's a sleep kit to help you rest and pause. I asked Jim Bob. Jim Bob is, I mean, like Jim Bob's a doctor, right? Jim Bob knows, like science knows this stuff, whereas I practically know that stuff. So I asked him, why is valor, courage, bravery, facing hard things like the Roman soldiers did, why is valor in a sleep kit? Wouldn't it make more sense for Valor to be in the release kit? The release kit is a kit for living, doing day-to-day life. So I'm, I'm saying, wouldn't courage be needed more to endure the day rather than face the night? The sleep kit's for going to bed, I told Jim Bob. The release kit is for facing the day. Jim Bob answered, well, it's true that the sleep kit is for pausing to rest and recover and that the release kit is more for living whole, But sometimes, and I'm telling you um, while you're listening, this, this is completely revealing. So get ready to mentally highlight this. Uh, Jim Bob said, sometimes the most courageous thing people can do is actually stop and pause. Think about how many things people do to occupy themselves in order to avoid being quiet, still, or alone. I thought about what he said for a moment and I thought back to my recent history with my smartphone. I looked down at the phone while he's talking to me. My phone was on. For the most part, it stays on. Even when I sleep, my phone is on. I thought about the weekly report that Apple sends me each Sunday, detailing how much time I spend on the phone each day on average. They also outline which apps are the biggest culprits. Five and a half hours, one report said. I looked at it closely that was almost six hours per day that my screen was on with my eyeballs actually facing it. I mean, yeah, sure, I turn out a lot of my work on social media but not that much. I generally, just being honest, create my graphics and write my copy on my computer and then since my Apple devices sync, I let the content cross over to the phone on its own through the cloud so I copy and paste the images from my phone that I created on my computer with the text that I created on my computer. Okay, so here's what that means. That means that the five and a half hours, it didn't include any of the screen time on my laptop, which is the place that I actually spend the majority of my device time. In fact, here's just how much time I spend on the laptop in addition to the five and a half hours, just giving you some data to where you see the full gravity of this. Over the past 12 months, as of i um, typing out these notes for this talk that I'm giving you. I wrote in excess of 2,300 pages of content. I produced seven video courses. I created several hundred graphics for social media. And and yeah, I mean, you could say, well, that's your job. And it, and it is. That's kind of what I do full time. But all of that, because I'm doing it full time, it makes five and a half hours of screen time on the phone seem a little bit absurd because that five and a half hours is all an add on to the time I'm doing on my laptop, which is where I do all the screen time work. And that's an add on to the desktop that I usually use to edit videos. So after I looked at this, I decided to knock the screen time down a bit, the phone part. Um, since I I don't mindlessly surf the internet on my laptop, if I'm on the laptop, I'm generally 99.9% of the time working. Okay, so the phone is the culprit of just being busy and idle. I cut the time quickly. I actually contemplated removing the apps and turning my smartphone into a dumb phone, only deciding not to do so because I would need to grab another phone or an iPad, which would be at another screen in order to handle my social media feeds. So in the end, it was easier to just do the phone the right way, rather than create a series of workarounds. Now, all of those thoughts about the phone were rambling in my mind. And I look back at Jim Bob. Remember, we're having a conversation about Valor and why you need courage to be quiet, to pause, and to sleep. We're talking about why Valor is in the sleep kit rather than the release kit. I kind of shrugged my shoulders like that whatever, I don't know emoji that's on the phone. I think you're right, I told him. The last 18 months was the hardest season of my life ever. During that time, I wrote more pages than I imagined possible and I concurrently, get this, watched more Netflix series, every show in the entire series, than I can actually count. I spent a lot of time alone doing the hard work of the soul, but that was intentional. It would have been even easier to turn the TV back on and just stay on my white futon for a few hours. A lot of people are like that, he said. That's why people scroll Facebook while they're laying in the bed at night. And I interjected. kind of halfway confessing. That's why they hit Instagram first thing in the morning before they even roll out of bed. Yep, JB continued, and it's why they look at their social feeds while sitting at the traffic lights when they're driving. I said, we've lost the ability to just be bored, to just be quiet, to just sit alone. And then he actually said, does anybody even sit on the toilet anymore without looking at the phone? Now think about it. That's a really good question. And I thought about all the alone time I'd spent over the last 18 months. Sometimes that was harder than any other thing. Just being alone, the quiet space became the tough place. So I told him, I understand why Valor is in the sleep kit now. The bravest thing some people can do, the most courageous or valiant activity is to actually stop. Pause, confront the whispers they hear in the silence. I read Michael Hyatt has a book free to focus this past year. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. He writes about doing less stuff so that you can really zero in on what you want to do. And then he discusses the importance of margin of living with this quiet space. Okay. That is like do less stuff and then do that less stuff so that you can do it better and focus more on it, but do it less of the time. So he tells of a phrase he and his wife learned while traveling through Tuscany while they were on sabbatical. He actually unplugs for an entire month every summer. Uh, the, the statement is, uh, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but when you're saying a statement in a foreign language, you just say it aloud with confidence, and then everybody, because they don't know it either, just assumes that you know what you're saying, right? So the, the statement, I think, is a dolce far niente. A dolce far niente. It means the sweetness of doing nothing. That is, it's not only you don't fill every space with something, you actually celebrate that space where nothing else exists. Now in his book he says this, our brains aren't designed to run nonstop. When we drop things into neutral, our ideas flow on their own, our memories sort themselves out, and we give ourselves a chance to rest. Then he says this, sufficient sleep, it keeps us mentally sharp and it improves our ability to remember, to learn, to grow. It refreshes our emotional state, reduces stress, and recharges our bodies. Meanwhile, going without sleep makes it harder to stay focused, to solve problems, to make good decisions, or even to just play with others. To summarize what he says in my own words, the quiet space, is where the magic happens. But it turns out we don't have much space for magic. We fill it with smartphones, plus film series, plus memes, plus sound bites, plus any other thing that can hold our attention. We don't value the pause, we value productivity. And that productivity, whether it's notching off another project, or catching up on another social feed, or just a film series, a TV series, it often masks the fact that we're afraid to confront the quiet. Uh, to, to borrow language that I used in a previous talk, sometimes we're addicted and what we're addicted to is just noise. So my question is this, are you nervous or are you afraid about getting quiet, about hitting the pause button and spending time on your own in silence? If you are, it might, it just might, not definitely is, but it might be a sign that you're living out of rhythm. Number two, Number two is this. You often feel sickish or sluggish for no reason. Now when I ran the Windows-based computers, it seems like I got a new Trojan horse virus every few weeks. They were hidden in email attachments. They were located in enticing web forms. They're buried in software downloads. They're like pleasant-looking files that carry hidden cargo, small warriors waiting to unleash their fury on your hard drive. When they did, the entire system began to drag. The boondoggle was so culturally pervasive that entire companies like McAfee and Norton, those companies ballooned overnight by selling somewhat workable solutions to these entire fiascos. Now, what baffles me about this is Macs still run virtually virus free. Okay. Anyway, think of your body like a computer again, like we began this talk with. In the same way you need a regular reset in order to keep performing, When something goes amok internally, your hard drive gets sluggish. Most people understand this on a physical level, an upset stomach, a small infection, a headache. They can toss your entire body into half speed. Most people don't realize though that the same thing is true emotionally, mentally, and even spiritually. When one area gets affected, your entire system is affected. Now the solution for ridding your computer of a virus is to download the correct software and then to, yeah, you know it, reboot the entire system. That's right. Turn the thing off. It almost sounds so simple, right? So much that when you call the cell phone companies or you go to the genius bar, you feel stupid when they tell you let's just hard reset it. Yet here's the deal. We don't do it with our computers because we don't want the downtime from work. We can't pause the output. So we endure with shoddy operating systems. The same thing happens in real life too to us. We don't want to slow down. We're too busy to slow down. Now remember Michael Hyatt's lines from a few moments ago. Sleep is when your body rebuilds. it's when your mind goes to rest, your mind begins processing and mending and figuring out the stuff from your day. It's when you reset completely. It's when you heal. Now, oddly enough, this is such a massive concept that even business books are being written, not about mission or vision or other things that we typically attribute to business, but about getting more sleep and even entire books written about taking naps. Like you can find this at Barnes and Noble books a million. If you go there right now, Now there are five stages of sleep. Most people never get out of that first bit where you're halfway asleep, halfway awake. That's the place where dreams and real life blur. That's the place where you dream that an intruder is breaking into your home, but it's just a kid walking into your room and then tapping you on the shoulder and freaks you out. Uh, That's the place where you continue waking up confused about what's real and what's the dream. Now, when you don't get enough rest, it flips your body's internal cadence upside down and backwards. You begin running on adrenaline at night, such that you can't sleep then, and you begin crashing during the day. So you constantly yawn, you always need coffee, you desperately crave a nap. You look zombie-like. In fact, your close friends might even mention it. You feel sluggish, sickish. Now, remember, remember too, remember this, that your body needs rest when it's awake. Like. It needs space when you're not looking at the phone, not occupying every minute. Your mind craves the quiet, even if your thoughts initially rebel against it. Uh, This is why some of you see me now when I go run in the morning, sometimes for 45 minutes on a shorter run, an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, two hours, I don't take any headphones with me. I just go and I just let my mind just do what it does. And the first time it was so difficult. But after about 30 minutes, my mind started craving just that time because it's almost like it knew it could just sort, process, whatever. Question for you. When's the last time you daydreamed? See, daydreaming, it works a lot like sleep. Uh, it's a time I daydream when I run. It's a time when your mind wanders, making the connections you need and begins creatively processing hidden data in your internal uh, mental emotional hard drive. Uh, the majority of my best ideas they spontaneously emerge from nothing when I'm not thinking about anything except for that exercise that I'm enjoying in the moment. Uh, in her book Grunt, I read this when I was putting together the Warrior Hope uh, PTSD manual for military. Uh, veterans Uh, grunt. Mary Roach recounts her lessons from the military. I'll put a link to her book in the show notes as well. Uh, She says they studied soldiers who lacked sleep and discovered that when we get less than eight hours a night for two weeks in a row, we begin operating at the same diminished capacity. We would if we had too much to drink, except we haven't. And it's on all day, every day, like a get this, like a perpetual hangover. So, question again, do you feel sluggish? Do you feel sickish at all? Often times, for no reason, just think about it. It could be, might be a sign that you're out of rhythm. Number three, you're snappy. Now, I have seven biological kids. At various seasons, I've had even more kids in my home. Each kid has their unique personality, their own quirks, and the traits that make them uniquely themselves, even though they've all been raised in the exact same environment. Here's one thing they all have in common though, even though they're different. When they were little and when they got too tired, they all morphed into midget minions. They got snappy. They fought over toys, even toys they weren't playing with at the moment that someone else was playing with. Toys that disinterested them. They couldn't complete their sentences. They became tyrant toddlers. No, no kidding. My kids were and they still are incredible. They were and still are obedient tender. They look out for each other. They prefer each other. They take each other in and take each other to the movies and buy each other things they are amazing siblings to each other. And unless, unless they're tired, Uh, particularly when they were little, if they got tired, all bets were off. Then I knew it was time to say something like this, like, Hey, uh, buddy, or Hey, you're manifesting something. That's not quite you let's go lay down and let's just start over in an hour or so. Or if it was late in the day, I would say, Hey, let's just go brush your teeth and hit the B E D and and they knew like if I spelled out bed, it was, and I would just say, you don't even have to take a bath tonight. (laughs) You've had a long one. Tomorrow's a new day. Let's just go to the bed. Okay. So when I did that, the results were predictably awesome. Every time the kid awakened from the nap or from the night as if resurrecting from the dead their manners returned, their kindness was back. They were brand new little people. Turns out they weren't emotionally devastated even though they acted like it, they were just tired. Now apply this to you. If you're having trouble sorting through some clutter, getting along with other people or finding yourself overwhelmed with the situation, it may be that you need some help, or it may be that you just need some rest. And the same way that toddlers, they get legit crazy. And then you and I look at them and we recognize they just need a bit of rest so that they can handle reality. Adults, we're the same way. So question, are you snappy, cranky, like an oversized toddler a wee bit too much of the time? That could be a sign. It could be a sign that you might be out of rhythm. You might need a pause. Number four, you feel depressed and you can't figure out why. Now, last fall, I found myself sitting in a nearby coffee shop. I find myself in places like that a lot. As I finished typing a chapter for a project I was completing, I stared out the oversized storefront window next to my table. Outside, the day was perfect. It it wasn't one of those dreary gray-colored days that makes you feel foggy. Yet, as I closed the computer without turning it off, of course, I thought, Man, I'm really tired. Inside of me, something was brewing, like something wasn't quite right. I look back outside. Sometimes the weather makes me feel tired as if my body mimics what's going on in the environment. Clearly, this was not that, though. Why, why am I tired? I, I pondered it. I went to bed last night around 8 p.m., uh, Lay down and watched a movie, turned it off, and then I slept a full two hours. This, this doesn't make sense. But then I thought about the bigger life situation in which I found myself. I looked down at my phone. It's always on, right? I reread the previous few text messages that were there. A once close companion had drawn a sword against me. I realized I wasn't tired as I had to sit there in the coffee shop. I was actually depressed. And no, it might not meet the clinical definition that a professional would use to diagnose, treat, or prescribe me. That's not what... Um, I'm getting at here. What I'm saying is I was clearly down. Now get this, depression and tiredness often mirror each other. In other words, depression can make you feel tired. Whether it's clinical depression or you're just feeling down, feeling depressed can make you feel tired or the other side, being tired can make you feel depressed. Sometimes you're both. Other times, your soul, which gets depressed, dictates to your body how it should feel, so you feel tired. Then there are other times when your body, it's tired, makes your soul feel something that might not actually be the case, depressed. Now that day at the coffee shop, I was depressed, my soul, not tired physically, clearly. Now now if I told you the story, the one happening in real life at that moment, not just the one playing in my head, you'd probably agree, yes, I can see exactly why you would be depressed and I understand why that would make you feel really really tired. Now I've learned a few things about myself through that experience and through getting language for that and other like situations. Sometimes when I feel a little down, especially now that I'm not afraid of words like depression nor fearful of confronting the fact that I might feel like a little blue. I can actually recognize when I'm just physically exhausted, so tired that my body's need for rest brings my entire soul down with it as if it's begging me to give myself a break. At other times when I can't separate the two and tell which one is which, I've learned I can eliminate the variables by just taking a break. I can ease back from the computer. I can go for a stroll around the block, coffee and hand, even if I'm at a coffee shop. if I'm at home. I can just go for a brisk run. If it's late, I can just go to bed. When I know that I'm not being lazy, that I'm stewarding my time well and proactively doing the work that the Lord has granted me to do with diligence, I can confidently take a solid pause when my body or my soul, either one, tells me I need it. And then the feelings that I have, they just tend to buff. So, question for you. Do you feel depressed? You you might be. You might need to go see a professional licensed one who could diagnose, treat, or prescribe you, but because I I can't do that. You, you might be that, but you, you might also just be tired. Either way, it might be a sign that you need to step back in rhythm, that you're going too hard. Number five, here's our fifth one and then I'll just relist them all for you. Number five, you've just endured trauma or hard things. Now, most people can't and shouldn't make major decisions in the midst of trauma or when they're unusually tired. When you're in the middle of something hard, the best thing that you can do is step back, catch your breath, and wait. Very rarely will you make things worse by waiting. Rushing, on the other hand, it can create all kinds of chaos. And also, I mean, I would just kind of say this, just kind of like a parenthesis type note, most truly golden opportunities aren't now or never, regardless of the story we tell ourselves. Now, let me explain this and illustrate this, that you've just endured hard things um, with a story, and this will help sort it and make sense of it. A few years ago, uh, an elder in our church, he lost his mother-in-law in a tragic car accident. I was studying at a coffee shop when I received the phone call, and oddly enough, several of the elders and staff members from our church had planned to eat dinner at his house that evening. Now, the mother-in-law, she was unmarried, and she had been on the way to purchase groceries for us when the accident happened. This happened on a Saturday. The next week, we all, all those leaders, paused everything while we helped him and his wife sort their new normal. Uh, His wife was the only child of the mother-in-law. A few of us, we joined his wife at the funeral home to navigate caskets and costs and decisions, uh, which really need to be made for burial. Uh, Others of us kept kids. Others of us set up mill trains or ran family errands. I drew three other straws that I'll tell you about. Uh, First, I accompanied my friend to visit family members and to tell them the news. Um, That is, I delivered the death notices with him. Now, due to where I was emotionally um, and where he was emotionally at the time, I did most of the talking. It was surreal and it was raw. Uh, a lot of family members denied the reality we tenderly delivered to them and then they, they expressed completely predictable reactions to hearing tough news uh, second number two i rode to the tow truck lot to gather personal effects and remove other belongings from the totaled suv uh, his wife didn't want to see the vehicle in which her mother who had been her best friend also was killed so the lot fell to him the husband to do this understandably he didn't want to go alone so I went, I climbed into the half crushed car and retrieved the items. Number three, third, this is the, this is the bigger one that's really kind of the point um, that we're making here. I drove my friend to the law firm where his mother-in-law worked as a paralegal for a big name attorney in town. It was the same thing. We needed to go gather her belongings like people do when they retire and move out for good. He didn't want to handle that errand, moving her out of her office, really about 10 years too early He didn't want to handle that by himself. Now looking back at each of these three snapshots, there's no way he could have made the trek by himself. He had just been t-boned with some of the worst news that you can ever hear. There was no prep period for it. It was totally unexpected. It made sense that he needed someone literally to tell him where to go, what to say, and when it was time to leave and move to the next item that was on our growing list of things to handle post-mortem. Now while we were at the attorney's office, that third one, He discovered that he needed to handle one more thing and he didn't want to be there alone for it either. Even though it was intensely personal, we needed to resolve her life insurance policy. The firm provided one to care for her family in the event of an unlikely death. In that moment, we stood in the midst of that unlikely event that no one thought would ever happen. I I need you in there. He told me, I don't know that I'll be able to remember anything that they say in that meeting. I've never done this before either. So I was honored to go, to be trusted, to help him meander through those difficult moments. We sat in the office thinking we were about to receive a check for about $10,000, slightly more than the burial expenses. However, the gracious boss before us explained that he and his wife, who was also a partner at the firm, adored this man's mother-in-law, and they really treated her and adored her like family. Because of that, they increased the original policy on her behalf, personally, to provide the same coverage that the partners at the firm received. She meant the world to us, the attorney said. You never think anything like this will happen, but we wanted to make sure that her family was cared for if it ever did. He reached across the mahogany desk that all attorneys use, and he handed my friend a check for multiple six figures. As the boss left the room, my friend looked at me, showed me the check. then. what what do I do with this? I, I, I wasn't expecting this. In that moment, I knew he was looking for leadership, for someone to tell him exactly what he should do. Why? Because he found himself in the middle of trauma. And when unresolved emotions are involved, it's almost always impossible to see the path forward. I made a list. I told him slowly and definitively, I know you've been looking at minivans and have planned to purchase one for you and your wife and kids for a few months now. Next week, after the funeral is over and out-of-town guests have gone home, go pay cash for the van like you already plan to do. That sounds good, he said. Then what? Take the rest of this money and put it all in an interest-bearing account for at least one year. He started taking notes, writing the instructions I offered him. I continued, don't touch the money for a year. None of it. You don't need to make an emotional decision about it. That means not to tie any of it to our church, not to go do something emotionally charged in the moment, like take everyone in the family on an extended vacation. Just let it sit. You weren't expecting it. You don't need it to pay your bills. Time will give you perspective on how to make the most of what she's left you and your family. Then after a few moments, I added, and don't tell anyone about this money except for your wife. People will come out of the woodwork wanting money if they know you have it. Keep it quiet. I also suggested he run my advice by the other three guys who ran the church with us and their wives, those elders who had been picking up the slack since the car accident. But that was it, vaulted, for at least 365 days. A year later, almost to the date, my friend approached me after church one Sunday morning. We just dropped a check in the offering, he said. It was from that insurance settlement. Thank you for telling me to wait to do anything with the money. You were right. As his wife pulled up outside in the white van she'd been driving for the past 11 months or so, he continued, We would have made so many bad decisions in the moment if we didn't have someone looking in from the outside telling me that it was okay and even best to just pause for a while. Getting some distance between us and the accident helped bring some perspective. Thank you. Well, you would have done the same thing I offered. When you're in crisis, the best thing you can do is let someone you trust help guide you. It's hard to make a decision in those moments. It's best if you can just recover and lean on someone else for a while. As I mentioned earlier, I worked in drug rehabs, homeless shelters, and prison reentry programs for about eight years. Every day I encountered people in crisis. This one was fleeing an abusive situation. That one was facing court. The other one was staring down legal ramifications that finally caught up with them. Those people were all in some form of crisis. I've learned I'm actually skilled at making wise decisions amidst crisis. I don't freeze. I don't fight. I don't get frightened. I can see it all as if in slow motion, even though you sometimes have to make really quick decisions and I provide sound counsel that always benefits the other person unless it's my own crisis, that is. Then, since I'm personally involved and invested in the outcome, it's hard for me to navigate. In fact, it's almost impossible. I'm too emotionally charged, and at that point, I need to stop, I need to let someone else that I trust steer me. Like most people, I can't make good decisions when I'm tired or knee-deep in trauma, so unless I'm forced to, I don't even try. I step back, I pause, I gather perspective. Now my question for you is this, have you been through a traumatic experience lately? If you have, that's hard work and it's hard to rest and reset while you're in the middle of it. For for your long-term health and wholeness, it's worth stepping back and making sure that you move into rhythm and pause without making major life changes. Now I uh, was referring to Young Living earlier. They have two kits, Young Living Essential Oils, related to emotional hurts and wounds for invisible scars. Uh, The Freedom Sleep Kit and the Freedom Release Kit both work together. Somehow in my mind, I mentally placed that Release Kit first. That kit is the kit that you use for facing hard things while you're awake for making decisions, for enduring hard meetings, for facing tough obstacles. But that's not the way things are designed to work. Young Living actually suggests that, and this was designed by a guy who knew his stuff, who studied trauma for years, and knew natural health extremely well. He suggested, Gary Young, that you use the sleep kit for 30 days, followed by the release kit for 30 days. Do you see that? That you rest for 30 days and then you endure for 30. Here's why. In the Healthy Hustle book that I referred to earlier, I, I wrote about the way in which ancient Hebrews viewed a 24-hour day. They began their day, this, this is like Jesus' culture, they began their day at sunset, not sunrise. That is, they began with evening, with rest. That's why we see the refrain throughout Genesis 1, uh, that, uh, just quoting the scripture, there was evening and then morning, the whatever day those kids acknowledge this, that the rhythm of creation is rest first, then work. It's the cadence that's true for all of life, particularly for doing the work of handling emotional hurts. Rather than minimizing the hurts, which is something that we tend to do and then pushing forward, we need to acknowledge them. We need to slow down. We rest, allowing whatever needs to surface to make its way up, free from the clutter that usually pushes it down, the clutter of just trudging through everyday life. We We recharge. We may find we're still wounded, but at that point, we're able to move forward. Now, here's what I want you to do. Pause. I want you to reflect on what you've just learned about emotional freedom. Those five signs that you might be out of rhythm that like the smartphone, that like the computer, that like the television, that you might just need to power down and do a hard reset so that you can power Here's, Here's the five signs. You can't get quiet. You don't want to be alone. Number two, you often feel sick or sluggish for no reason. Number three, you're snappy. Number four, you feel down or depressed. Number five, you've just endured trauma or hard things. Now remember, like we discussed in a previous episode with the wounded wrestler, Many times a simple, unrushed pause is enough to provide the grace and space you need to recuperate, to recover, and then continue. Think about it. And as we sign off, my prayer for you is that the Lord would bless you, that the Lord would keep you, that the Lord would be gracious to you, that the Lord would grant His face a favor upon you, and that you would just enter this wide open space where you can simply Slow down, where you can breathe deep, and you can just pause. Grace, peace, and that beautiful word that we often use is the last word that means the settlement, the repurposing, the bringing together in wholeness and recover of all things. Shalom.